Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Elizabeth Varon, Langbourne M. Williams Professor of American History at the University of Virginia. She's the author of numerous books. Her most recent is Armies of Deliverance, A New History of the Civil War. Elizabeth Varon, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to get a chance to sit down and, and talk about uh, the Civil War. So, uh... I've loved your books ever since the great book about one of the great American heroes, Elizabeth Van Lu. Thank you very much. Which I gave to my sister. Um, lovely uh, to hear that. Um, as a proud graduate of Washington Lee, this was the kind of Virginian that we liked. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways ever since, uh, like in my own thinking, how to make Virginia more capacious mm-hmm. and how to make the history of Virginia more capacious to hold People like Elizabeth Thangloo, as well as John Mercer Langston and sure, Oliver Hill sure. and things like that. That's been a big theme and, of my and, own Yeah, and, and even Dan Morgan, um, yeah. which in some ways, these are the people that don't make the stereotypes of both Virginians and people outside Virginia. Absolutely. This book feels like you've been working towards it for some mm-hmm. way. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Have you? I think that's right. I, I, I Certainly, I've been interested in Southern descent and in... Uh, sort of complicating our sometimes monolithic pictures of the North and South and in the process of political persuasion by which the Union cause and the Confederate cause takes shape. So absolutely, I see it as, a, as an extension of, of some of my previous work. Certainly in my book about Appomattox and, and Grant's surrender terms to Lee, I make the case that Grant is magnanimous, hoping that he's going to change Southern hearts and minds and and uh, set in motion a sort of process of repentance and reunion. And in some ways, this book about Northern war aims is the backstory to, to that philosophy of Grant's mm-hmm. as he extends those those leading terms. So this is this is a remarkably capacious use that word again history of the Civil War. I mean, you don't neglect battles, mm-hmm. but there are. You're not a, 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 a sort of political historian thinks oh, that, those things aren't important. You talk about them all, but you feature them, and often and we're going to spend hopefully a lot of time talking about different points of the war which you wish to emphasize. Yeah. The, uh, the contraband movement, uh, the contraband moment, we should say, of the summer of 1861. Um, hell, bread riots in mm-hmm. Richmond. We could go on. There are, yeah. certain, there are certain other things that you wish to... Is that right? I mean, that's you, you right. wanted to combine so the, the familiar, but also look at the familiar from a different perspective. That's exactly right. And, and another theme of my career has been trying to integrate social and cultural history with military and political history. Uh, and and but, that, To make what we call interesting to history. To make what we call interesting history, capacious history, as you put it so so beautifully. And this book has its origins uh, in, in the technical sense in an assignment I accepted. I was commissioned to write a Civil War textbook by Oxford University Press. And when I took on the assignment, I didn't have one particular question that I wanted to answer or a provisional thesis. I just had a method. I wanted to do what you've just described, to integrate the social and cultural and the political and military so that things like African-American experiences or women and gender wouldn't uh, just be present in standalone chapters, but would be woven right. throughout. And, and, and this is, it's an interpretive synthesis. You're always standing on the shoulders of others when you write a book that... I'm very that, careful that, to mention that, everybody. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, 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 that's so, so important. Um, and, and the interpretive synthesis where these threads are all woven together is possible at this moment because scholars have been working so hard uh, in this way to tell that more capacious story, mm-hmm. so... So, in a, I, I don't know if you're intending this, but sometimes it seems to me that you're also trying to come up with a new school. Yeah. Or you know, a new, at least that's that's a little bit, I, don't, I think you're too modest to say that, but perhaps just a, a new perspective, new yeah. perspectives on the Civil War. Your perspective is what the literary people or the, the, the scriptural study people call your hermeneutical key mm-hmm. is deliverance. Mm-hmm. So, which you, it is, uh, it's a hermeneutical key, mm-hmm. it's a chord or a movement that you keep returning mm-hmm. to in the course mm-hmm. of your symphony. Yeah. You know, so what is deliverance from, a, uh, from the northern and then also from the southern perspective? That's a nice way to put it. Deliverance is a theme, a leitmotif. It's meant mm-hmm. to connect the chapters. It's not... Uh, 
this is not an expository book where, where I have a thesis I set out to prove, but I do have this theme, and it very much draws on my own. I, I'm sort of an intellectual historian at heart, uh, and, and my what, what interests me most is discourse analysis. Uh, I don't use those words in the book, but... Uh, usually, but it, we usually don't say things like yeah, this exactly. in the podcast. But, yeah. uh, but I'd love to study political rhetoric. The 19th century language is so complex and vivid and so familiar and yet so different at the same time. Uh -huh. So, again, I didn't uh, have a thesis or one central question when I started, but I, as I was doing the research according to this method I've described, trying to be capacious and, and to integrate social and military and political, I kept running across this theme and this word. I wrote a book on the origins of the Civil War that focused on the word and theme of disunion. That was much more a keyword study than this. In this case, as you've suggested, deliverance is uh, a concept that had other, um, there were other words that could be used to invoke it, liberation, regeneration, redemption, and so on. But deliverance was the one that was used most frequently and in a most purposeful way. So deliverance for Northerners was the idea that the war was fought to deliver the Southern masses from uh, their thraldom to an evil conspiracy of elite secessionist slaveholding oligarchs, which mm -hmm. was a term that they used. And, and Northerners who had developed a critique of Southern slaveholding society in the, in the years leading up to the war the Northerners and the Republican Party and the abolitionist movement principally had uh, observed that a small number of elite slaveholders dominated Southern society and they believed that those slaveholders were able to exer exercise that power by depriving the masses of, of free speech, of education, of economic opportunity, of social and technological uh, uh, progress. Uh, and so when secession happens, Northerners reason and reckon that the southern masses, the non-slaveholding majority, has been duped, as they put it, seduced, terrorized even, which is a word that they often use, into accepting secession. So the idea was to, to sort of break the spell that secessionists had cast uh, and to restore, and this is something I emphasize a great deal, Northerners felt the aim of the war was to restore the bonds of affection that held the Union together. They believed the founders had intended for the Union to be a Union uh, bound together by the mutual affection of its citizens, not by coercion. And this meant, in effect, that to win the war, Northerners had to do more than defeat Southerners on the battlefield. They had to change their hearts and minds and persuade them to love the Union again. There's a couple things there. One is, it's really interesting, as I've thought about the book, it's interesting how this idea of the duped Southerner last to this day, the duped white Southerner, and the way it's, it's, you can see it in the historiography recurring again and again. In some ways, you could see C. Van Woodward as, as, as sort of, as, as, you, as thinking that way. Perhaps yeah, that was because I, of his class. Yeah. Uh, my friend, uh, or Vernon Burton, in mm -hmm. some ways, would mm -hmm. kind of, is, Vernon mm -hmm. kind of is this way. I, 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 I would say that this is partly Vernon's, where Vernon comes from in the mm -hmm. South. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I mean, it's also his conviction, but it's also, there's, there's a little bit of that. Yeah, and um, of course it's it, 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 And Northerners often think that. Yeah, and it's an interesting and tricky concept because you have to get at Northerners' perception of what was going on, but then you also have to think about how all of this looked yeah. through, through the eyes of, of uh, both Confederate and anti-Confederate Southerners. You asked about Confederates and deliverance. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a deliverance with all of its religious overtones in this, in this you know, overwhelmingly Protestant uh, uh, and highly religious society is a, is a word you would see used in a lot of contexts, and certainly Confederates sometimes spoke of their deliverance, and they meant their deliverance from abolition radicalism or the deliverance from northern invasion. Deliverance from a constitution which has been turned, manipulated against them. In their view. So, yeah. um, but as a scholar named John Coffey has written an excellent book that inspired me here, has, has explained Deliverance rhetoric was less prominent, less forceful in Confederate propaganda because Confederates feared that too much emphasis on the theme of liberation might spill over into the sphere of slavery, as he puts it, might inspire slave rebellion. That was a, it was a, it was a tricky, volatile concept for them. So it's not as, as central to their thinking about their war aims uh, and purposes as it is on the northern. And side. of course, there are other Southerners who think about deliverance in a different way, too. Uh, we call them enslaved. Yes, um, absolutely. There so, are white yep. unionists up in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina and scattered throughout the South here and there, primitive Baptists 
as Bertram Wyatt Brown pointed out in an mm -hmm. essay years ago, mm -hmm. a lot of them primitive Baptists, who also think of deliverance in a different way. Well, and this is, this is uh, in some sense, the reason why it was such an effective tool for political mobilization. Our, ultimately, my argument is that deliverance was such an effective tool because it could be imbued with different meanings by these different stakeholders in the Union War, and it drew followers like a magnet to the mm. Union cause and permitted Lincoln to build this big coalition. So as you've just suggested, for African-American slaves and for free blacks in the North, they have a much broader meaning of deliverance. Deliverance is about a two-front battle, mm. a battle against the horrors of Southern slavery on the one hand, and a battle against racial prescription in the North on the other hand, where they are free but mm. consigned to a second-class citizenship. So that's a battle against slavery and racism uh, that, uh, uh, that, that plays out. Uh, and and uh, deliverance could be, again, Lincoln's challenge is to harmonize a northern political spectrum that is very broad. Uh, and we've, you mentioned sort of historiographical debates. Um, historians have debated whether the uh, northerners were motivated primarily by their fealty to the Union and desire to restore it, or whether uh, abolition gains momentum during the war and becomes the central purpose uh, and achievement of the war, displacing Union. And I, by nature, like to find the middle ground in these sort of debates. And, and, and in some sense, what emerged for me as I was reading through the evidence and, and writing this book according to the method I described was um, a sense that this deliverance theme helps not only to harmonize the points along this this uh, this political spectrum, but it gives us a window into the vast middle of the political spectrum, which we sometimes emphasize less than uh, uh, the, the the more the more progressive and conservative ends of it. And as, as some have pointed out, um, very recently, and Gary Gallagher, your colleague uh, here, um, but in other more recent studies, and I forget the, I forget them, but. We've had a hard time taking union seriously mm -hmm. as a cause, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but deliverance uh, emphasizes the seriousness with which Northerners and and some Southern Unionists, especially right. in the border states, took union. Right. That Absolutely. there was it was actually an ideological fervor to union. Absolutely, that is trying to capture that ideological fervor to union. I am describing an ideology, an ideology that had the power to shape people's yes. perceptions, and that comes uh, part of what I'm trying to. Uh, explain is why Northerners were so invested in the idea that they could save the South from itself, mm -hmm. even in the face of massive evidence that Confederates didn't want to be saved. So what explains that investment? Mm -hmm. and, and, and it has, as I try to explain, political and cultural and social and economic and all, all sorts of dimensions. So if we think of the Civil War as a number of beads on a, on a necklace, um, let's cover some of the less sure. obvious beads, sure. but which are important for your study. Um, we'll even include Gettysburg in there, much against my uh, uh, normal... Irresistible. Yeah, well, it, yeah. Yeah. but I, I want to because it's, you're obviously now of the, the, the Gary Gallagher, Alan Gueltzo school <laughs> of Gettysburg, which is nice and provocative. Yeah, and, not, not the turning point. No, not, yeah, not, yeah. no turning point. So uh, let's talk about the contraband policy yeah, sure. of 1861. So uh, as long ago as the Kimberlin Civil War, Barbara Fields was saying that uh, enslaved people made themselves a problem. And I think uh, in a previous podcast, I'll give the, the show notes with Richard Newman, we talked about how abolitionism, abolitionism begins almost simultaneously with the creation of chattel slavery in the English-speaking Atlantic world mm -hmm. as a legal system, mm -hmm. uh, if, if maybe even a little bit before. Mm -hmm. And likewise, no sooner does the Civil War begin than people start freeing themselves because there's something to free themselves to someplace where they can be freed. Absolutely. So let's talk about that in yes. Fort Monroe. So uh, for historians, and I'm a great fan of Richard Newman, the emphasis in all of the recent great modern scholarship is that emancipation is a process, not a moment in which mm -hmm. Lincoln promulgates the proclamation, that it's driven by slave resistance and by a culture of free black reform that converges. Abolitionism is really the convergence of those, those two things, and that we see slaves seizing, building on a tradition of flight that, of course, stretches back to the Underground Railroad of the antebellum period, we see slaves seizing the opportunity to withdraw from slavery as soon as the Union Army uh, penetrates the South. And famously, this first uh, uh, sort of uh, moment of reckoning is in 
May of 1861 when <laughs> slaves flee from right, literally as soon as possible. As soon as possible, flee from Eastern Virginia, appear at the Union-occupied Fortress Monroe, where Ben Butler is the general, uh, and seek refuge there. And their master shows up and asks. Uh, for them to be returned according to the provisions of the Fugitive Slave Law, and Butler says somewhat saucily, uh, the Fugitive Slave Law doesn't appeal to people from a foreign country, which is what you claim now to be. You can't be invoking the law mm. to protect your property when you've seceded. Um, this, uh, uh, so Butler improvises this solution of declaring these slaves to be contraband of war, confiscating their labor power, as it were, Congress endorses this policy in a, in a first confiscation act in that first summer of the war that uh, uh, permits Union generals to make the decision Butler did not to remand escaped slaves back into slavery. It leaves their status a little bit unclear. It doesn't declare them forever free. That, uh, uh, that uh, breakthrough uh, will, will come later. But the important thing to know is that this is the opening wedge, as you've described, and by the end of the year, tens of thousands of slaves will escape to Union. Do we have, do, the Union do we have numbers on that? Uh, I, uh, tens of thousands, I think, it comes from uh, James Oakes' very uh -huh, good uh -huh. book on this subject, in which he's emphasizing that even in the first year, because the point he's trying to make is that whatever the architects who designed confiscation thought they were doing, whatever politicians thought it might mean, it could be imbued with a relatively more conservative and a relatively more progressive interpretation as a policy, slaves took it to be a catalyst, yeah. in that, and that's what now, it was as a practical When matter. you dig into like stuff, I've, I've, readers I've, I've made up for students, and look at the, just the, the enslaved people who were coming into the lines around Washington yeah, alone, right. you realize that by December, by Christmas of 1861, whatever's going to happen, it can't go back to exactly the way it that's was. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, and scholars will say that by the end of the war, uh, roughly half a million slaves have fled. That is not the majority of slaves by any measure, yeah. but they've also noted that those who did not flee, because, for example, the Union Army was too far away uh, to give them any chance of success, destabilized slavery in their own way. That You couldn't go back in those settings either, because slave resistance of all kinds, of silent sabotage and all the rest, is ratcheted up. Uh, as a way of destabilizing the institution. And, and yet to jump way ahead to the end, when you read uh, Mary Chestnut or Gertrude Thomas or any diary I've ever read, and by the last week of April, or certainly in May, enslaved people are leaving, and they just can't figure out why. They're yeah. so angry. It, right, it but, but you flies see, in the face of their ideology. ideology. Yeah. But you see that that is exactly right, that even in deepest South Carolina, yeah. um, people are, something has already changed Absolutely. in them, such Slave that as soon as they're yeah. able to, they start to reconstitute their families. Absolutely. This is what's yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where they're going. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, so that, everything's changed because of that. Let's talk yeah. about the border states. Sure. This is, I think, I, my, my feeling as undergraduates and probably also lay people the, of, that think about the Civil War, this is sometimes the most foreign idea, mm -hmm. is when I quote the, quote the Lincoln saying, I think to lose Kentucky is to, is to lose the whole game. Mm -hmm. What did he mean by that, and wasn't he wrong? Well, the, the border states are so key to all of this, and, yeah, and really in are. a sense, to, the key to understanding the border states is to make a, a, a move uh, that I think reflects the evidence and the, and the attitudes at the time, but that historians sometimes miss using hindsight, a move that William Freeling, the great historian of, of emeritus from the University of Kentucky, has made in a book called The South versus the South, where he says, in the eyes of Northerners, those border states were Southern places. Sure. They're slaveholding states, they're Southern places, they're places that Northerners <sighs> have to wrest from the clutches of an aspiring secessionist you know, and as you leadership. get into the Southerners feel the same way. Yeah, right. Of course, so, they have to redeem, deliver Kentucky, they, deliver Maryland. Yes. I don't know if it extends to delivering Delaware, so, but it could. Absolutely. So, yeah. there's, so Missouri, there's, they're, they're, they're a battleground from, from the, the, not so much a middle ground, but a battleground from the very start. And in terms of this rhetoric of deliverance, they're a test case mm. to see whether in places where there there's slavery and slaveholders, but not as big a percentage of the population is in the seceded states, whether uh, the Union can bring them back into the fold. So Lincoln um, is uh, very keen, keen not to do anything to alienate them. He's also keen to use the allies he has there, a few of the border state politicians who are willing eventually to embrace his emancipation policy. For example, the Cassius Clays and Robert Breckinridge's loom really large uh, as people who might bring others uh, 
uh, others on board. Um, these are places to test his compensated, gradual compensated emancipation schemes. Um, and, and famously, uh, in terms of the narrative of how emancipation takes shape as a policy uh, that Lincoln promotes, he offers what Freeling calls memorably a sweetheart deal to border state slaveholders as slave resistance is eroding slavery. He says, look, the writing's on the wall. The institution is fading. How about I compensate you for your slaves and, and we, we get freed gradually and sent away, deported, expatriated to someplace like Liberia. Take this offer while it's on the table before slavery's gone. And border state slaveholders, including in the least enslaved state, Delaware, just rebuff him. Yeah. Uh, and and historians usually emphasize that this frustration explains why Lincoln turns to an Emancipation Proclamation. And that's true, but I think it's also important to note that Lincoln doesn't stop working at the state level. Those places are exempted from his Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. He's trying to build support to the extent he can in those border state places for a Republican Party with an anti-slavery agenda. And he, and he uh, has, again, from his perspective, deliverance is working in Maryland and Missouri. A, a, a group of Republicans gain traction yeah. uh, that makes it possible for those states to abolish slavery during the war. The other thing that's important to mention that Freeling mentions is that um, at, at the end of the day, the inhabitants of those border states vote with their feet and they vote to support the Union, not the Confederacy. So the Confederates hoped to draw huge manpower from places like Kentucky and Maryland and Missouri, and they're unable to do so. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, Kentuckians, Marylanders, choose the Union Army, you know, two to one. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. And I don't know what's like in Missouri, but it's also not. There, there was this idea, I mean, Kentucky is, is, is important for, oh my goodness, so many reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Natural geographical border Absolutely. of the Ohio. Uh, horses, mm -hmm. uh, corn, mm -hmm. feed, mules, and Absolutely. men. Absolutely. Uh, all those things. Right. Uh, and you were right to say the Confederates see it as, as quote unquote, naturally a part of Confederate territory yes. because it's a slave holding state. And, but but uh, it's, and, and invasions don't go well. It's yet. impossible to leave Maryland out of it. It's impossible yeah. to imagine a Confederate that's anything less than victorious if it holds St. Louis and Louisville. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, you know, as William Freeling has put it, the, the, uh, and the title of his book gives away the thesis, this idea of the South versus the South. The South is internally divided, and mm -hmm. there's substantial numbers of anti-Confederates. Obviously, the most important anti-Confederates are African-Americans who will, will fill the Union Army. 200,000 African-American men will serve in the Union military. Nearly 80% of them are Southerners. So part of what Freeling is trying to get us to do, what I'm trying to get us to do, is to say... In a, in a lazy sort of shorthand, we often equate the South with the Confederacy. Right. We all do it, but 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 we ought not to, because by the time you 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 reckoned with black Southerners who were in favor of the Union, uh, border state whites who again vote for the Union with their feet, and the existence of relatively small but symbolically very significant numbers of of white unionists in confederate states mm -hmm. you have a south that's that's yeah divided. you give the, the figure uh that's something like basic 200,000 whites serve in the union army i mean 2,000 white southerners the freelings uh, these freelings, statistics come from from, yeah. from freeling uh, uh i think it's um uh trying to recall how he breaks it down um but it's 100,000 whites from the confederate states yeah. 200,000 from the border states, and so then, that's significant. And then formerly enslaved people right. from the South. Yeah. It adds up to basically all the men. 450,000. It adds up to the men that the South loses to death. This is Freeling's yeah. point. And yeah. it's, it's, it's part, I was inspired by his book, uh, uh, inspired in part to say he does this magnificent job of, of looking at all this uh, very broadly. I was interested, going back to the Van Loo story, mm -hmm. to um, bring some of these individual stories to light of all the people who fall into that sort of demographic uh, uh, category that we've, we've just described of the anti-Confederate Southern. We've mentioned these uh, Unionists in the South. Um, when I was a kid, my mom had like the Harper's Ferry Illustrated History of the Civil War, and I remember looking at the pictures uh, rather than the text. I didn't understand what was going on, but uh, Harper's, Ferry uh, Harper's Illustrated Weekly not Harper's Ferry. Harper's, Harper's yeah. Illustrated yeah. Weekly. They, they they talk about East Tennessee a lot. Yes. They yeah. talk about Knoxville and the siege of Knoxville. I remember that and thinking, huh, East Tennessee. Yeah. And then when you read the grown-up books, 
East Tennessee doesn't get mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was really important to the North what was happening in East Tennessee. So what was happening in yeah, East Tennessee? Yeah, so there, if we look for white Southern unionism, we have to reckon with a few things. First of all, we have to reckon with the fact that in plantation districts of the South, white Southern unionists were few and far between, yeah. and a beleaguered minority and harassed and exiled. Peculi peculiar eccentrics. But, you know, but, uh, certainly not numerous J enough. James that, Johnson, yeah. Pettigrew, and a yeah, few, and very, five others. Very, <laughs> very, uh, uh, you know, again, Van Lu is an exception. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There was a unionist cell in Atlanta and, and so on. We don't want to overgeneralize, but they were few and far between in the slaveholding yeah. parts of the South where you're more likely to find pockets of unionism is in the mountainous counties. So if you, if you sort of just trace the, the, the Appalachian mountain chain and mm -hmm. you look to western Virginia and western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee and northern Alabama and Georgia, you see places where there are fewer slaves and slaveholders and therefore less investment in uh, in, in sort of slavery ideology. Di different cultural religious yeah, practices. Different cultural and religious practices. Now, it's very, white Southern unionism is a handle with care topic. The yeah, understanding true. it is to not uh, overstate it, mm -hmm. even in those mountain counties yep. who had a tremendous buy-in uh, to, to the Confederacy. And, and in general, I, I agree with Gary Gallagher, my, my, uh, my uh, UVA colleague, that in the seceded states, the support for the Confederacy is overwhelming. There's no, there's no way around that. And we see that in the, in the way the Confederates are able to mobilize such a huge percentage of the population. But you do have these, these pockets of unionism in the mountains, and symbolically, they are huge for Northerners, because again, yeah. they represent the, po the promise, the possibility that there are white Southerners yearning for deliverance. There certainly were in East Tennessee and West Virginia and some of these places. Uh, such Southerners, and in the East Tennessee looms so large in part because they have two very powerful spokesmen uh, who make the rounds. One of them is Parson Brownlow, a famous, uh, a very uh, acerbic and uh, entertaining newspaper editor who um, goes north and talks about how ill-treated he has been by the secessionists and paints pictures of the victimization and in intimidation of of unionists to a very receptive northern audience. And the other one, of course, is Andy Johnson, who's the one southern senator who doesn't support secession, who becomes military governor of Tennessee, Lincoln's running mate. So we see um, northerners and Lincoln's administration seize on these men. There's some other examples, Andrew Jackson Hamilton of Texas, a man named Edward Gant of Arkansas, who's been a Confederate general but uh, sort of converts to unionism. They are seen as a kind of vanguard that might lead others into the light. So their their example really looms large for uh, for for Lincoln and the Republicans. And so, again, as proof that deliverance might work as potential vectors of deliverance. And Lincoln puts a great deal of energy into the liberation of East Tennessee. His own personal time, yeah, 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 his yeah. thought, yeah. Uh, troops, supplies yeah. that could have been used yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it doesn't. It takes a long time to materialize because operating in those mountains is very, very difficult. So there, there's a there's a sort of long period where people are are um, imbibing these stories of the suffering there and frustrated that the Union isn't able to move. But eventually, yeah. as you said, they 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 put a lot of emphasis on all this. It's important to note that. We have a lot of depictions of uh, sort of mountain southerners and poor white southerners from Union soldiers, both enlisted men and generals, and those pictures are often, there's often uh, an element of pity uh, for their, their poverty, their ignorance. There's often an element of condescension uh, there. Um, but what really struck me here was that Although there is an element of cultural chauvinism on the part of Northerners who feel that that, that, that again that the white Southern masses are are ignorant and and and, and deprived, um, there is also in Northern culture this intense reverence for the Southern founders, reverence for George Washington, reverence even for later Southern mm -hmm. leaders like Andrew Jackson, and a, and a, and an eagerness to bring Southerners not only back to the table as constituents and citizens, but back to the table as leaders of the Union, provided they're Southerners who are right-thinking, loyalists, you know, so, and this is part, partly explains, again, Andrew Jackson on Lincoln's ticket. This isn't, this isn't only about, uh, uh, you know, a sense of North, Northern cultural superiority. They revere the South. Yeah. They believe the secessionists have taken it off course. This is, uh, I'm struck, I always struck when I, you read diaries, and I don't, I'm not, this is not my period, this is, but you read them occasionally, uh, 
at first in the war, later on it becomes sarcastic, but they refer to the sacred ground of old Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're really serious about it, really even if they're from Vermont. And this is something, uh, again, uh. that really interested me, that, that um, you know, we tend to imagine in a war the two sides demonize each other. That's yeah. what they do. They, 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 they have to dehumanize yeah. the other so that they can kill them. It's not so simple in this war. Absolutely the Confederates demonize the Yankees because the Confederate purpose is to say, Northerners and Southerners can never again be brethren and countrymen in the same country. So if we were looking for the hermeneutical keywords on the Southern side, it'd be things like pollution, degradation, yeah. extermination. Yeah. Those are the things they impute to mm -hmm. the Yankees. But on the Northern side, there is, because the emphasis is to get the errant brethren, the, mm -hmm. the, the prodigal sons back into the Union, so many metaphors of that kind are, are used, there, uh, this deliverance sort of extends to their images of the southern landscape. That yes, is to right. say, northern soldiers don't see the south as some hostile enemy country. They see it as as a land of unmet potential, yes, a they, land of faded glory. I'm sure some of the privates you read haven't read Olmsted's right, adventures, right, right. but they sound like they him. They do, exactly. And, and yeah. that somehow that slavery has robbed this of the, the I mean, For that matter, they sound like 18th century Virginia reformers. Yeah, but, blighted but the region, they blighted the region. Free labor will regenerate. Yes, and again, yes. this is the, 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 that's a great point about having read Olmsted, but because one of the things that struck me reading through so many letters and diaries. I was obviously interested in public discourse and politician speeches and sermons and newspaper editorials, but those don't count for much if you don't know what people are saying in their private letters and diaries and so on. So I tried to read a, a great deal of both, and, and I did find that northern soldiers, as if they had been handed a script from which to read when they wrote their diaries, kept invoking this deluded masses theory of mm -hmm. southerners, kept invoking this sacred soil view mm -hmm. of the southern landscape. Uh, this sort of declension narrative where, yes, we should revere Washington and even Jackson, but but the current... How things have changed. How things have changed. So this is the power of ideology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about... Here's one that people aren't expecting. The United States Sanitary Commission. Yeah, yeah. Go. This is a fascinating <laughs> it is. story. So it's so fascinating. The, the war becomes a massive humanitarian crisis. Yeah. You know, anyone who's read anything about the Civil War knows that the medical establishments on both sides were completely unprepared to handle the massive carnage that is going to ensue from all of these very costly and often indecisive battles. So relief societies spring up, both in, in the North and in the South, oftentimes led by women who are channeling their, their uh, sort of experience working with charities or, and their domestic skills into helping the troops. The North is more centralized and more organized about this kind of relief work, and an organization that's sort of semi-public, semi-private called the United States Sanitary Commission is founded by some prominent reformers. Uh, from northern cities. It's uh, based in Washington, D.C., and the Sanitary Commission coordinates the efforts of all these local relief societies to provide sanitary, quote-unquote, help to troops, which in the lingo of the day meant supplies on a massive scale, food, clothing, medicine, and so on. The Sanitary Commission did more than that. It also established and staffed field hospitals and floating hospitals on shipboard that could uh, go down riverways and so on. It sponsored major fundraising events to raise money for all of these supplies. Be enormous and, fairs in enormous northern fairs. City, cities, in and Louisville and Baltimore as well. Absolutely. And this was um, uh, so important. Uh, it became an important vehicle for women's yes. patriotism and women's contribution to the war effort. And we have uh, women serving not only as nurses, which is a relatively well-known story, but as hospital managers and hospital matrons. And, and some statistics uh, and, and scholarship has shown that uh, uh, men in soldiers in hospitals where there were female matrons had a better survival rate because the women were paying attention to hygiene um, diet and morale in a way that a surgeon who's only interested in the quote-unquote heroic mm. amputation or whatever yeah. might be. So it, it, it can't overstate how important that is. For my purposes, the Sanitary Commission was also important because it churns out this deliverance rhetoric. Um, it suggests that, um, in a way that suggests that the Union can reconcile hard war tactics with this kind of mission of mercy. Well, one of the things historians have puzzled over is, at what point does the Civil War become a total war? Is it the last Napoleonic War or the first modern war? When do we start to see civilians targeted by policies like confiscation, by things like 
uh, like sieges and bombardment and so on. And increasingly, scholars are emphasizing that you see total war tactics from the start. And I certainly find that in my book. But what I try to argue is that Northerners are able to reconcile hard war with deliverance by arguing, in effect, that those hard war tactics are a medicine that will save the patient. In slapping, the end. slapping the hysterical he, person across absolutely, the face. Absolutely, yeah. you know. And, and so we see the Sanitary Commission engage in, again, this kind of metaphor that that the South will be saved by the severity of the surgeon's probe, as one reformer puts it, or by saved as by fire and images of religious purification, the pain that will save you. Mm -hmm. This in a society at a time in medical knowledge when it was thought that if you weren't in pain, you weren't healing. Pain was part of the, mm -hmm. of the healing process. And so uh, the Sanitary Commission's head, a man named um, Henry Bellows, uh, gets up in his New York City pulpit at one point and says, we smite to heal and kill to make alive, which is a way of saying, you know, sounds like doublespeak, but in his mind what he's saying is that we will save you and there may be pain involved. Uh, and and so this, we see the Sanitary Commission giving voice to this deliverance rhetoric. We also see it in women's writings in a way, again, that seemed as though they'd been handed a script. So again and again and again we see women caretakers, nurses and hospital matrons, include in their accounts of the war vignettes of encounters with wounded Confederates. And the Sanitary Commission said, we will care for some wounded Confederates. This is a sign and symptom of the magnanimity of Northerners and the superiority of Northern society. So it's a way of saying women and this sanitary project can soften the hard edges of war, mitigate the pain and suffering of war. And this, this will be proof, again, of the, the you know, uh, virtue of our purposes. Again and again, we see women uh, report encounters with Confederates that go something like this. I'm paraphrasing. A northern nurse helps a wounded Confederate. He says, oh, I'm so surprised if I know you, you Yankees were going to be so merciful. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have taken up arms, you know. And, and, and again and again, for me, what struck me was the power of anecdote. Northerners will seize on something like this. There may be 10,000 men dead on the battlefield, and those you could say those dead Confederates are evidence of the seriousness of Confederate purposes, the power of Confederate ideology and nationalism. But instead, the story of the person who, who uh, seemed mm -hmm. to be willing to repent, yeah. uh, who became a symbol, again, of this work of changing hearts and minds was just emphasized so much in Northern, in Northern rhetoric. And again, not only in the public propaganda, but in people's private diaries mm -hmm. and, and letters. It, it even unites, I mean, kids. I mean, what's interesting about the Sanitary Commission work is how it unites the nation. Absolutely. To, to, to that. I mean, that, women, children, I mean, they can... I, I, everyone has a part to play. and can. I think of part. all places, Dan Beard, one of the founders of the, of the Boy Scouts, I think I remember reading in one of his books, like How to Build a Log Cabin, how the first log cabin he built was when he was 14 as a model to sell at a sanitary fair in Louisville. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know why, how that stuck in my all, hair, in my head. No, but, it's, it's a yeah. way, absolutely, a way of mobilizing people and, and, and uh, giving everyone, including those who aren't at the front, to do their duty and to, and to valorize it. Yeah. Um, emancipation. Uh, over the summer of 1862, another, uh, another a huge bead on the necklace, um, but a mysterious one. Uh, I remember a conversation in a seminar where a professor was saying that you know, he really, that Link, the worst thing Lincoln ever did was hold uh, a conference about colonization. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, his le famous letter to Horace Greeley, uh, his Lincolnian, with his Lincolnian, uh, very, very reminiscent of his rhetoric of the Gatesburg Address, if I could do this without doing, you know. Um, all these things happen. Yeah. Which often I don't think people don't always realize when he has a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, he's drafted yeah, in, in his, his in his literally yeah. often sometimes yeah. in his back pocket. The yeah. way he works yeah. might be in his top hat. Right, right, right. It's certainly it's in his desk drawer. Might, yeah. Certainly in his desk drawer. Yeah. Everyone and you know so, a couple of people in the cabinet know that. Yeah. Even as he's doing, what in the world is he yes. doing? I mean, like Michael Burlingham, your Lincoln is a shark. He's always mm -hmm. maneuvering. Mm -hmm. He's always circling, looking for advantage. It yeah. always seems to me. You know, maybe seeing, waiting upon, seeing if his actions conform to possibly the possibilities of events. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, the way historians have, have tended to describe this complex summer of 1862 with all these events to which you allude is to emphasize that Lincoln is a pragmatic politician who's trying not to get ahead of public opinion. So Congress passes a second confiscation act that summer that has broader 
um, uh, you know, parameters than the first Confiscation Act. It, it applies to all slaves of disloyal masters who make their way to Union lines, whether they've been used for military purposes or not. It declares them forever free. That's an important step uh, in the right direction. McClellan's Peninsula campaign fails. The North needs some, some uh, reinvigoration of the war effort. Border state slaveholders uh, have repeatedly now refused Lincoln's offer of gradual compensated emancipation uh, and and his and his sweetheart deal. So Lincoln, uh, observing all this and and that phenomenon of slave flight, which which uh, is just ratcheted up over the course of the war, Lincoln drafts a preliminary emancipation proclamation that summer presents it to its, his cabinet, they decide they'll await a military victory so that when he promulgates it, it looks it's not like a desperate last move, but like part of a new winning plan. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, uh, while he has that Emancipation Proclamation, preliminary proclamation in his, in his back pocket, he writes this famous letter to Horace Gridley published in the New York Tribune, the most popular paper of the day, in which he says, if I could save the Union by freeing the slaves, I would. If I could free, save the Union without freeing a single slave, I would. Mm -hmm. Seeming, a seeming indifference mm -hmm. about slavery. And then, as you said, he meets with a delegation of African-American political leaders in the White House and, and seems to revive the idea of colonization, which African-Americans have rejected. And in fact, he experiments that summer and winter with that colony off of the coast of Haiti, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So he's very loath to give up on that idea. Yeah. And scholars have said, well, what's going on? One way to think about this is to say this is a elaborate form of theater on his part to pave the way for emancipation. That is to say, he knows he's going to have to promulgate that decree. He knows that large swaths of the northern public are still uneasy about it. He's trying to send them the message that whatever he does, he will do to save the Union, not because he's driven by some private moral mm -hmm. beliefs that some people might feel uh, as, uh, that are radical. He will have done so after he's tried the other available good uh, options, and so he is uh, sort of sending a message to his followers of, uh, that union remains his paramount goal. And there's a lot to be said I mean, for that. That's a more argument. sophisticated, I mean, people often have a very simple minded reading of his famous statement public opinion is everything. Yeah. If you read what he says after that, he means you have to develop public you opinion. You have to develop You have to appeal it. Yes. You have to mold it and right. shape it. So you have to speak to them. A lot of my focus is on how he develops public opinion and how his allies develop public opinion. And, and I note that um, this view of him as pragmatic is, has a lot to recommend it, but that he also deeply resents the attempts to paint him as a radical. He knows that it would be very dangerous for him to be painted as a radical. He has this affinity for a Henry Clay-style gradualism that he's developed over his political career. He has trouble letting go of it. Um, he, I also he also has radical moments, which maybe he repents of. Yeah, I mean, he like, has you know he he he's he's very very aware again that that of the need to build a big coalition yes. and then to keep that coalition together. So the thing that I found that surprised me that the existing literature hadn't prepared me to find uh, as as much as I did was that Lincoln and his allies, as they pivot to accepting emancipation, make an argument that emancipation will have broad benefits for all Americans, including white Americans, including and perhaps especially white Southerners. Mm -hmm. and, and the degree to which they tried to harmonize emancipation with the deliverance message surprised me. Because again, we tend to think sequentially that, that yes, I mean, almost all scholars have conceded that there's a lot of this deliverance rhetoric early in the war, but they imagine that it it, 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 it disappears as the Union pivots towards hard war and towards emancipation. What surprised me, what I found, what I was, in a sense, conditioned to find by having worked on Grant's surrender, where those deliverance ideas were at the heart of the terms he offers yeah. Lee, is that those ideas persist. And so uh, the question emerged for me, became a central focus, how and why do they persist? And I found that one way in which they persist is by, uh, through Lincoln and his, and his supporters, people like Harry Beecher Stowe and reformers as well as politicians saying emancipation will have broad benefits uh, for, for, all, for all Americans. Uh, and, and, um, and the corollary to this is that policies like confiscation and emancipation, they argue, are meant to target that slaveholding elite. Yeah, I wonder for Lincoln if, if it doesn't come also part of his, I think, a very idiosyncratic idea of free labor. Yeah. I mean, well, it's not just his, but at that time it's a Republican Party idea of free soil, free labor. 
um, in which it's much better to be a, a white Southerner, a poor white Southerner in a place that prizes free labor than to be in one with Absolutely. enslaved labor. Absolutely. This is, was a big part of free labor ideology, the idea that the presence of haughty slaveholders and degraded slaves, yeah. you know, uh, uh, undermines the, 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 the prospects and the dignity and value of free labor and that the presence of free labor can lift all concern. So that argument about the broad benefits of free labor is, first of all, an argument about removing the thing that has been yes. the source of sectional tension and is the source of the war, namely slavery. But it's also, again, about this promise of free labor to regenerate the land and to, mm -hmm. and, to, and, and, and to regenerate the economy and to open the way for new ideas and to make it possible for the South to catch up to the North and all those measures of modernity, schools and hospitals and, and newspapers and, and so on. So. That is a, a you know a, a, a strong um, uh, argument that Lincoln and his and his uh, followers are very intent to push. Yeah, well, we're starting to go over time, and we're just to 1863, 1862, 1863. So let's talk about quickly about Vicksburg and Gettysburg. Sure. Why weren't they turning points? How dare you say that they weren't turning? What is what, go? Well, <laughs> here I am very influenced, as you suggested, by my my colleague uh, Gary Gallagher, who in a series of books and edited volumes has made just an inescapable <laughs> and indisputable point, and that is That's that good. armies, like uh, politicians, spin the results of battles. Yeah. And that, you, the results of battles the, 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 could be endlessly spun. So as we think about uh, uh, the, you know, who won and lost any given battle, there's the casualty rate, whether it was a tactical victory or tactical defeat, there's a sort of strategic calculation about whether the, the battle advanced in overall strategy, but there's also a kind of political or symbolic reading of, of the meaning of these battles. And naturally, Confederates spun Vicksburg and Gettysburg. They spun uh, Gettysburg uh, to, much the way they'd spun Antietam to say this was a large-scale raid, and as a raid, it succeeded, and, the arm, and Lee's army got away uh, in a brilliantly executed defeat to fight another day. So um, Vicksburg was harder to spin, and Vicksburg was the bigger blow to Confederate morale, but as Gallagher notes, because by this point, Lee was so much the focal point of Southern nationalism and Southern hopes, the idea was that if Lee's army is still in the field and exists to fight mm -hmm. another day, then there is military hope for the Confederacy. There was also a hope, uh, a, a kind of a fantasy turned out to be in some ways misplaced because Lincoln proves to be such an effective leader using all these tools at his disposal that we've discussed. There was a hope that uh, northern divisions would come to the fore, that northerners would turn on Lincoln, that they would turn on each other, that battlefield victories potentially on northern soil in the Maryland and Pennsylvania uh, invasions would, um, would make northerners repudiate Lincoln, and that a Democrat might come to power who was willing to come to the negotiating table. And of course there was Lincoln... Now we think of him as our greatest president, but he was under fire from both his left and right people who wanted him to move more quickly yeah. on emancipation, people who wanted him. You read, you read the criticisms uh, and you wonder what part of the Republican Party did he actually control? Yeah, I mean, it's really, he was very much under fire. And again, this is part of what I'm trying to say is that he, he, he uh, chose rhetoric that was meant to, to build and then maintain his coalition and deliverance had this, this, you know, this, mm -hmm. this broad appeal. Um, so he's under fire from from both sides, and some of those critics, the Copperhead Democrats, the most virulently anti-Lincoln, anti-emancipation critics, sound like Confederates. I mean, yeah. They accuse him of waging a war of extermination, uh, much the way that Confederates uh, uh, do. So he, he he knows how important it is to counter that rhetoric, and and in the end, those Confederate hopes for a North divided against itself don't materialize, Lincoln wins re-election, which if there's any turning point, that's the that's turning point. That's the turning point, point which is very yeah. late. It's very late. <laughs> and certainly an election that he, had, at least in, what was it, August, he expected he not to win. He feared that he might lose, yeah. right. So he wins that election, and he wins it in part because, I argue, he's able to mobilize these deliverance themes. He rechristens his party the National Union Party. He puts a Southern Unionist on the ticket, yeah. and, he, and he trumpets in that election his two signature policies, one of them we've talked about and we all know very well, emancipation. The second signature policy in some ways is, is, is uh, 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 goes right to the heart of this deliverance strategy, is his amnesty policy. Yeah, is that the 10% plan? The 10% plan. Could you explain that briefly? Yeah. I mean, so that's, he that's... has promulgated this in December of 1863. He, he's, all along he's kept his eye on 
on the way that Republicans are gaining ground in some border states and on experiments in reconstruction in Union-occupied portions of the South, like Louisiana, where you have a big occupying force, some homegrown Unionists, a potential for a, a sort of Union vanguard to take shape and perhaps lead the state back into the Union. So Lincoln promulgates this plan, amnesty plan, that says essentially that any Southerner who takes an oath of future loyalty, the past set aside, to be forgiven an oath of future loyalty will have their political rights restored, not the right to own slaves, because the laws changed on that score, but other political rights restored. And once a group of those oath-taking loyalists equal to 10% of the state's 1860 pop voting population electorate has formed, they can, in essence, uh, be a, a, a vanguard that can apply for readmission to the Union and start the process by which um, readmission uh, flows. They could elect representatives to Congress, uh, have potential electoral college votes, and so on. So that proves to be controversial. The point I want to make is that um, it's impossible to overestimate how enthusiastic Lincoln is about this amnesty plan. Part of the reason that people know about emancipation and it's such a catalyst to further slave flight is that soldiers take copies of the Emancipation Proclamation and spread them around the South. Mm -hmm. They do the same with the Amnesty Proclamation. He sends cavalry men out with copies of it to leave in Southern homes. Uh, it, it, the idea is to distribute it in the hope that it will prompt desertion yeah. from the Southern Army. Uh, this is Lincoln has a big hope that it will prompt desertion. Does it? Um, uh, no, uh, not to the extent that he that he wanted. Again. Um, the Peters siege of Petersburg did the, more than that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, not the amnesty offer, because of course Confederates counter by saying, uh, uh, trying to, to discredit the amnesty offer as a ploy and so on. But but he's extremely enthusiastic about it. And the point I want to make here, as I know we're running out of time, is that as as his National Union Party campaigns for his reelection in 1864. They present amnesty and emancipation as two sides of the same coin, two things that go together. Uh, they both are deliverance moves, one mm -hmm. to deliver the African-American population, one to, in a sense, to deliver white Southerners from their Confederate loyalty, as mm -hmm. I think James McPherson has put it, I think I'm paraphrasing him there. Um, and the, the, the genius of that is that the elements of Lincoln's coalition can emphasize whichever of these two policies they prefer. Mm -hmm. So we see moderates and conservatives emphasize the amnesty policy. Mm -hmm. And we see people like Frederick Douglass who are disappointed that the amnesty policy does not make black voting a precondition for uh, these states re-entering the Union. We see him nonetheless support Lincoln. Because the 14th Amendment is still in the future. The 13th no, Amendment right. is now after the election. Is, he, yeah. he, he supports Lincoln because he knows that the choice is between moving forward and moving backward. Yeah. And that as uh, in a McClellan election, will mean uh, potentially the undoing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. So Lincoln's victory very much uh, shows his, his skill at keeping that coalition together. And, and it can't be overstated that he emerges with a broader mandate than he did in 1860. He even gets electoral votes out of out of Maryland and Missouri and West Virginia, which yeah. again he sees as a huge success. I looked at the, I was in the Maryland archives once and looked at the votes for in 1860. I don't know how that came up, but I just looked out of curiosity. Anne Arundel County, Annapolis, two votes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> two votes. <laughs> yeah, and again, I mean, yeah. we can, I'm, I'm asked so often, looked at in hindsight, doesn't it seem that Northerners were deluded to believe in the deliverance message? And my answer in part is that, you know, first of all, again, people, ideologies have this power to shape what, mm -hmm. we, what we see, but also that Northerners believed that there were success stories to point to. And again, West Virginia, a great example. And mm -hmm. there, in, in, in the, as told by Lincoln supporters, the West Virginia story would played out exactly as deliverance rhetoric would, would have had them yeah. hope and expect. The McClellan's army brings unionists to the fore. They enter, they have a statehood bill that, that provides for gradual emancipation. Yeah, the 1864 election, we have the astonishing uh, national vision of did Kentucky go for Lincoln? I think to know, or, or certain West Virginia. We got West Virginia, yeah, West Virginia. Mar Maryland, but not Northern New Jersey. So right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that. so so the the uh, again, in order to tell to tell a narrative as Lincoln supporters do about West Virginia swinging into the Union column and the anti-slavery column uh, as a victory for deliverance, you have to. You have to not acknowledge all kinds of things, how bitterly divided West Virginians were, how it was a site of guerrilla warfare, and so on. But, but again, this is, this is the, 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 naturally, Lincoln's election campaign emphasized the successes, and they yeah. felt that there were successes they could 
Um, so you had already mentioned we're so we're past the election. We're into 1865. Uh, Grant has Lee right where he wants him. Mm -hmm. uh, where Lee always feared that he would be driven, mm -hmm. which a siege. Mm -hmm. um, the Confederate Army is draining deserters. How does deliverance? You you did say at Appomattox and post Appomattox, Grant still has deliverance on his mind. Absolutely, he's been very carefully tutored by Lincoln. To, yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, he and Sherman have both been tutored yep. on this deliverance yep. philosophy yep. on the ten percent plan, on military reconstruction as Lincoln conceives of it mm -hmm. in March eighteen sixty five, yeah. April eighteen sixty five. So, how does deliverance mark the last two to three months of the war? So, uh, absolutely, um, we see. Northerners interpret the great events of the last few months of the war, say the fall of Richmond, as mm. just parables of deliverance. Here we have the Union Army show up to a grateful African-American population and a core of white Southern Unionists of whom Van Lue was one. Here we have the Union Army save the city from the, the, the flames that uh, Confederates, the fires that Confederates Yeah, those lithographs of the uh, you know, burning um, Richmond. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. this just seems to be the Union Army is an army of, of Liberation just seems to be the uh, the, uh, uh, the the message here. I mean, uh, I, I, and, and again, for African Americans and for white yeah. Southern Unionists, it was yes. uh, ex exactly that. So, um, uh, if we look at the way that the Northern press describes something like the fall of Richmond, it's entirely in these in these deliverance terms. As I say at one point in the book. Again, part of the sort of political genius of the deliverance theme was that it couldn't be disproven until. So the, con the Confederate leaders had surrendered, you know, mm -hmm. because you could always say, well, once again, once we, we've broken the spell, once we've toppled the oligarchs, then we'll really see um, that unionism, that latent unionism and loyalty come to the fore. So Grant is very much hoping that he, his Appomattox terms, will prompt repentance. I, in a former book, I wrote that we have this notion of Appomattox as this gentleman's agreement between Lee and Grant that they're on the same page, they both want the reunion of the country they love, and so on. I, I have argued that's a fable that they are worlds apart it's, ideologically. It's a military, and, and Grant is very specific. It's a military it's Yeah, a, absolutely. It's a military it's a, agreement. Grant says this is this, again, the grant of mercy is, is a military uh, move, surrender by parole, the, the, the political status of the Confederates to be determined. That, and was, that was Lee's by, bid that he receives at Farmville, isn't it? About, about a, a final sort of peace agreement. But Lee still hopes that he has some power to extract some concessions yeah. in that final moment, um, and Grant. Uh, uh, obviously feels otherwise. So we, we do have this moment, and, and there's so much testimony from Grant's troops and, and, and Republican politicians and Northern civilians about a sense that uh, now with this show of mercy, you are going to have repentance and, and a return to the fold. Lincoln's assassination is a wake-up call hmm. uh, to coming right on the heels of Appomattox, and some people begin to wonder about what it means, whether it was a Confederate plot, whether whether it means the North had been too magnanimous. Um, what ends up happening, to make a sort of long story short, is, is something that often happens at the end of wars, which is to say that the Northern Coalition, which deliverance rhetoric had been so crucial to unify, um, once it's lost the common purpose of fighting the war and defeating the Confederacy, the fault lines in that coalition come into view, and it becomes clear that people have very different understandings of, for example, the degree to which African Americans would be granted full citizenship and rights. And this, the, ultimately the most dramatic symbol of this is, of course, Andrew Johnson, who becomes president having served a purpose for, for Lincoln, having supported emancipation on pragmatic grounds, but he shows his ideological affinity with his sort of Southern Jacksonian democratic roots as president, and he makes it clear that he favors only a very narrow definition of freedom for African Americans. It's the right to work for wages, but nothing more. Rejects the ideas of black equality and citizenship, and he takes deliverance rhetoric and retools it, in effect suggesting that the white Southern masses, who he considered the spoke himself to be the spokesman of, who had been victimized by the secessionist elite before the war and during the war, are now in Reconstruction were going to be victimized by radical Republicans, and that he had to save them from the radical Republicans just as he had saved them from the secessionists. So it's a very cynical and very openly racist, you know, reappropriation. I think he might that, also have believed it. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. Oh, oh, I think I think you're. I think he absolutely did believe it. So it just it shows again. So part of what I've 
I'm trying to argue across the course of the book, although I don't do it in an expository, you know, thesis and, and, and example sort of way, is to say the, 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 one of the problems in the long term with this deliverance rhetoric is that it kept white Southern victimization at the center of Northern understandings of the war for the whole war. In your Harper's Weekly, as you put it, Northerners feasted on stories of Southern refugees, of Southern Unionists, of yep. the suffering people of East Tennessee, and so on. So here is this motif of white Southern Southern victimization and suffering that Johnson could use to, to racist ends uh -huh. at the end of the war, and 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 did. So we see this again, the sort of elasticity of these of these concepts. So your book about the war goes on beyond the war. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I noted, you know, in, a, in my notes to you before, the, for the prior to the conversation, uh, so often, American history won. Yeah. U.S. won. Is yeah, really it's really It stops 1865. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, in a very broad-minded, yeah. it might go up to 1868. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's that Ken Burns documentary phenomenon, boom, too. Yeah, yeah. He was just doing what he had learned in high school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, that's that's how I, I, I yeah. doubt any high school goes beyond 1865. It's very, it's you know, and and if, the way we set up these surveys, if you do get to Reconstruction, you have to rush through oh, it because we have to cover we have to cover everything, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and 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 it's a postscript, and yet Reconstruction is arguably, <laughs> I've begun to think it is the most important moment, certainly in the American South. Yeah. Um, it's a it's such an important moment. We, it's also one of the great perplexing things, sort of at the heart of this, maybe one of the reasons for this podcast, uh, the whole podcast project that I'm on, is that it's something that academic historians have been completely changed their minds about mm -hmm. over 40 years, 50 years, and yet very well-educated people have an, a lost cause of the Reconstruction. Yeah, absolutely. It, it has not seeped through. Yeah. So is your next book going to be about the Reconstruction? Ah, well, in a or, sense, but, yes. Yeah. In a sense, yes. I, I'm, I'm, my next book is going to be a biography of Longstreet. Oh, really? Okay. So, fascinating character who, of course, is a Confederate general who, uh, the part of his life that interests me most is his surprising post-war life in mm -hmm. which he embraces the Republicans' Reconstruction agenda including black suffrage and, and the political participation, and is uh, treated as a pariah, ostracized as public enemy number one by Confederates as a result. Mm -hmm. In a way, he's such a clear window into Confederate purposes because he, he um, uh, this minute he ceases to be useful as a symbol of white supremacy in the defense of white supremacy, he's sort of cast out of the Confederate pantheon and blamed for Gettysburg. For everything. Every, basically yeah, everything. For basically everything. Wilderness, uh, Chickamauga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Knoxville. He's, he's fascinating because yeah. he, he represents, Longstreet's reaction is what Grant was hoping for in yeah. those magnanimous terms, but which the overwhelming majority of of former Confederates were unwilling to, actually to was, behave it, that way. It was one of his best friends of the Army, too. And one is, of the right. There's, that, there's that, a connection there, there is that. There. So absolutely, it's important to... I'm going to return to Reconstruction, and I think the key thing to realize, of course, is that you can't really separate the war from Reconstruction. And, and, and as we teach it and think about it, we're more and more um, emphasizing both uh, the things people did that connect the war and Reconstruction, the persistence of militarism, the persistence of violence, much mm -hmm. of it extra-legal vigilante violence, the nature of post-war occupation and the resistance to it. So the story of the military and of, and of, of society at war in the sense of steeped in violence persists, but so too, you know, are there ideological continuities? If scholars have observed, tragically, the pro-slavery argument survives in a world without slavery. It, is, it, it becomes, obviously, the, the ideologies of Jim Crow and segregation, the black codes, and so on. Um, the, the idea that, that the South can be saved from itself persists in Congress's program of Reconstruction, though, though uh, 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 you know, Northerners, Republicans gradually become very disillusioned because uh, it's so difficult to hold together a coalition in the face of, of white supremacist violence. Uh, and of course, um, African Americans will fold the Union victory and their their decisive contributions to it into their case for for civil rights. So um, uh, it's just impossible to separate these things. There are also interesting ideological defections. Yes, um, I'm talking yeah. to Doug Egerton next week about yeah. his new book on the Adams family. Yes, fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And this is uh, I heard Alan Gwelt make this point too. Is the way as Henry Adams in many ways 
defects ideologically to the cause of the slaveholders. This, this, uh, you know, there's, and, a, and he's not the only one. He's not uh, the only in, one. In, in some ways, I've been wondering Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. to a certain extent uh, if pragmatism is somehow a, a, a cynical, at least in his case, certainly pragmatism is a cynical capitulation to unfortunate human reality. Well, a way to put this is to say that, that there's this cult of reconciliation that many people have written about that really takes hold in the 1880s and 90s. In which people start to think of the war as this kind of exercise in manly valor on both mm -hmm. sides and set aside the difficult political questions. And as you're implying, that cult of reconciliation in, um, uh, is based on a sort of capitulation to the lost cause memory tradition. This is a point Gallagher and others have made in the sense that the, the lost cause represents the terms on which Southerners are willing to reconcile. That is, the terms in which they they uh, they get to share the moral high ground with with Northerners of that moral share equivalent it. No, share no. it right Actually, at the very, better at the, right at, <laughs> at the, the very least at the very at least, the very yeah. least. Yeah. Um, and so we see again what we've learned so much about recently uh, in in, in uh, works by my colleague Carrie Janey and others is that a post-war political uh, uh, reunion technically happens, but real reconciliation proves very, very elusive because um, uh, the, the various stakeholders have, have uh, you know, such, such different aims. Uh, and and at, at all times, we have to keep in our sight this lost cause memory tradition, the reconciliationist tradition, but also a one cause tradition on the part of Union soldiers who reject the idea that there's a moral equivalence here, that they can share the moral high ground, mm -hmm. and an emancipation tradition on the part of African Americans and some white allies who say, yes, slavery was the root cause of emancipation, the central achievement of the war, and we can't take the politics out of this. And, and so um, the competition, again, I'm here drawing from my colleague Gary Gallagher's great book called Causes One Lost and Forgotten, the competition between those memory traditions it's still playing out now, and it was playing out for the Adamses and Longstreet and all the rest in real time back during Reconstruction. My guest today has been Elizabeth Varon. She is author of numerous wonderful books, most recently Armies of Deliverance, A New History of the Civil War, available from the Oxford University Press. Liz Varon, thank you so much for thank being part you. of Historically Thinking. My pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, and if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.